our guest pastor today. His name is Colton Underwood. He is here from Baton Rouge, where he is the assistant pastor at First Presbyterian in Baton Rouge. Um, I first met him and his wife, who was pregnant at the time, uh, while he, he had just uh, finished uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary and was being uh, installed. He was being examined for our denomination, EPC, and uh, I think did a, a wonderful job. Um, so this is his second time back, so please welcome him back. And uh, yeah, here he is. Thank you all for having us back. Uh, my, my wife's not in here right now, but as you've likely already seen, the last time we were able to fellowship with you folks was uh, while the little one was still in the proving oven. So he's a, a wonderful joy, and it's great to have him here and to be in fellowship with you all in Jason's place. Those are big shoes, um, but we have a, a great task before us as we open and continue to unfold God's Word. You heard it just a moment ago uh, from 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm placing you down uh, at the very end of an epistle. I'm doing so intentionally. Um, I think there's a lot here for us to gain. Before we really get into the work before us, how about we go before the Lord and ask His help once more in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, You place the very stars in the sky. You set the heavenly bodies in the course of all history. It's from your hand. And so we entrust to you just this little snapshot, this moment, as you've placed us here in this place, as you have bound us together in Christ, as you've placed this word and kept it for hundreds, thousands of years. Lord, teach us, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to fully know you, for we pray it all in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, if you know too much about me, you probably already can understand it from uh, my accent. I am not a native Southerner. I am a Yankee, transplanted into the South about uh, Five or so years ago, I'm from the great state of Indiana, which you may or may not know a lot about Indiana. If you know anything about Indiana from Louisiana, roughly a thousand miles away, you might know three things. We're known probably for, first and foremost, the agricultural crop corn, whether that be popcorn, field corn, sweet corn, whatever it is, Indiana is big on corn, along with the other Midwestern states. We've got that going for us. We've also got the Indy 500. If you're into that sort of thing. I'm not, but that's something that we're known for. And we're also known for basketball. Um, I don't, basketball was not invented in Indiana, but it's a, it's a big deal. Uh, every year, people get really uh, riled up for it. And it's really, I think, uh, codified, it's memorialized in the film. If you've seen it, it's 37 years old. I hope you've seen it. Hoosiers. If you've not, go home, watch it. Maybe it's a good Lord's Day afternoon film to watch. I don't know. Uh, Gene Hackman stars in it. He stars as a uh, Coach Dale who takes this small town, uh, Hickory High School group of basketball players and leads them all the way to the mountaintop in Indiana, which is the state title. They play against a much, much larger school. And it's at that brink 
of going into that final game at Hinkle Fieldhouse in Butler University in Indiana where Gene Hackman's character, Coach Dale, gives kind of the, the uh, drum-up speech, the pep talk that he gives to his men before they go out onto the court. And it's really honestly quite simple. It's very well known, and he really kind of pivots around four basic points. He tells them, firstly, don't get distracted. You're about to go out into uh, a field house and to see uniforms that are fancy and flashy. There are going to be cheerleaders and, and lights and a huge crowd, but don't get distracted. That all could take your attention, but remain focused. Don't get distracted. Instead, focus on the fundamentals, he says. Focus on the things that you already know, the, the basics of dribbling and passing and shooting and things of that nature. Don't mess with the formula. Focus on the fundamentals while you're out there. Not only that, but thirdly, he says, remember what got you here. Remember the fact that the guys around you in this locker room have been with you. You've been through adversity. You've overcome it together. Remember what got you to this point? And lastly, he says, if you go out there and you give everything you have, put it all out on the court and leave nothing out left, I don't care what the scoreboard says at the end of the day in my book, you're going to be winners. That's when the slow clap begins and everybody gets excited and, of course, they go out and they win. I'm sorry if I'm spoiling a 37-year-old movie for you. But if you follow me, this is actually very similar to what Peter is doing here for us. This letter, if you uh, have read much of it, you'll understand Peter is very intentionally addressing a group of Christians that's much like us. In his day, roughly 30 or so years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and the establishment of the church, and Peter's restoration, he's writing to these Christians who were beginning to really grapple with the hostility of the world around them. Uh, only then was the sort of uh, more widespread systematic persecution beginning to rise up. They were exiles, and they identified as such very well. I think we can also. Those who are here in the world, but not of the world, we don't quite belong. Rather, our, our home truly is elsewhere, and we are on the journey toward that home, toward the inheritance laid up for us in heaven, but right now we still have work to do, and we still have challenges to face. And those challenges throughout First Peter, he's been describing as trials, as fiery trials especially. And using that imagery of fiery trials, he's been speaking of uh, refining and how that uh, shapes us as Christians. And this last few verses is here to give us hope and direction. This is our marching orders as we go out into a fallen world, again, as exiles, those who are uh, foreigners in a hostile land. So what are the things that we need to remember? What is the, the going out speech that Peter wants to give to us? Well, he makes my job honestly quite easy because if you notice in the passage, as we read it a minute ago, we'll go through, there are five primary action verbs. Five action verbs that he gives to us, and we're just going to work our way through each one of those as we follow through to the end of the letter. And the first one hits us right off the bat. He says in verse 6 that we are to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is to bow before the king. 
And if you notice the therefore, maybe you've already taken note of that, it connects us actually back to what Peter had just said in verse 5 and even before that. He's been speaking about the humility that lay people are to have toward elders, humbling themselves and submitting to their authority, as well as how within the church we all submit to one another, are humble toward one another. We ought to be. But if you'll see, verse 6 is really kind of the centerpiece because he says, if, in order to get that right, if you're going to properly have those uh, horizontal person-to-person relationships in line, the vertical has to be in order first. That if we're going to have any hope of being humble toward one another, truly, with open, perfect, uh, as close to perfect human love as we can, we need to be able, firstly, to humble ourselves before God to be humble toward him. Um, Todd earlier, I think, was speaking of the reality before our confession, uh, the call to confession, that we are called to to know ourselves uh, truly, in a true sense. And that's what humility is. I think that's a really good definition of that. Pride, being the opposite of humility, is really a, a, a diluted or inflated view of self that believes that I am more righteous, more strong, more self-sufficient than I truly am. But it is humility that truly knows oneself. So clothing oneself in humility before God is to know who you truly are, to know that you are more sinful than you might have once imagined yourself, to know that you are actually quite weak and needy. And that is, of course, only informed properly when we understand God rightly. When we understand God as holy, God as mighty, God as perfectly self-sufficient. And this might seem redundant. This might seem like things that, of course, this is like Christianity 101. This is stuff that you should know. But it's really, honestly, I think, quite easy to go over and to overlook. I was raised in the church from a very young age. I was baptized around the age of seven. But it really wasn't until after high school around when Rachel and I started to entertain the idea of marriage, that I began to truly understand my need. Uh, it, it became more evident to me as time went on, and for those of you who are younger, maybe it will for you too if it hasn't yet, it began to click more and more. I'm actually more of a sinner than I thought I was. Yes, I know I need Jesus. I need him to wash my sins. I needed him to die and to rise again for me. I need all those things. I need him completely. But when you begin to see just how deep your own uh, desire to pull away from God goes, it should, when we have that humble uh, mindset, when we truly know ourselves, that sinfulness and our own weakness, it ought to bring us to a greater place of humility before the Lord in seeking him, in bowing before the king. That should lead us then to a right relationship with one another. Before we move on from that, though, this this humility aspect is huge. Humbling ourselves before God is incredibly important, but it's not just humility for humility's sake. It's not just so that God can keep us where we belong. Rather, he says at the end of verse 6, that we are to humble ourselves so that, or in order that, at the proper time, he may exalt you. So that one day, when the time is right probably at the end of life, and probably when the Lord returns is really what Peter has in mind here, you may be exalted. 
Peter's been setting this up throughout the letter, that the life of the Christian is a cross-shaped life, and the, the, the life of Christ, as he said, was pointed forward to, as in chapter 1, he said that the prophets who looked ahead to Jesus looked, looked ahead to two things, his sufferings and his subsequent glories, and that's how our lives work, sufferings and subsequent glories. And so bowing before the king, being humble before God and under his mighty hand is recognizing his timing as perfect. Being able to be patient in the midst of whatever suffering we experience now, knowing that at his proper time, we will be exalted. That at the final day, we will be raised imperishable. That the things that we put off now, that delayed gratification will one day be brought in full. We are to humble ourselves that one day he might exalt us. That's the first thing. The first thing Peter wants us to go out with. And the second is like it. It's connected to it. That's why it's kind of a continued sentence here in English. Secondly, he wants us to cast our anxieties on him, onto Christ. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Our anxieties, and he's speaking, of course, to the common human experience. While anxiety, of course, is a very big buzzword um, and is huge, especially among the sort of more teenage and young adult demographic, anxiety is a big issue. I'm sure it is for many of you. It's not something that's new. By and large, anxiety is simply the experience of wanting control, wanting control over the things which we cannot control. It's seeking to grab hold of the big things of life that we know ultimately aren't in our grasp. And that's why we torture ourselves over these things. That's why we toss and we turn at night and wonder, how can I manipulate these things to go my way? And often that's not in a sinful direction. But though we bow the knee before the Almighty King, oftentimes we like to keep our own little kingdom things for ourselves. And the beautiful thing about what Peter is telling us here is, why don't you give those to the one who rules over them? Why don't you give those burdens to the one who is actually able to carry them? Because though we willingly place those on our shoulders, we can't hold it. We can't bear up that weight, not for long. So Peter tells us, give those to him, cast them, fling them violently on him. He can take it. But not only can he take it, the beautiful thing is that he is both able and willing. That's why we're to cast our anxieties on him, for he says he cares for you. Somebody is strong, who is able to do something, but maybe doesn't necessarily care or have much interest, we're not likely to approach them because they seem cold or distant. But if somebody is willing, yet uh, maybe isn't quite so able, we might not trust them. But here, don't you see, Christ is perfectly able and perfectly willing. And this is something that I think we should be mulling over for the rest of our lives. He cares for you. Is that I don't think it sinks in for me perfectly. I don't know if it ever perfectly will until I see him. But the idea that the God of the universe, again, who, who set the starry expanse in its place, who knows everything by name, who is outside of time, that he cares for you, and not just you generally, but he cares for the little details of your life that you think that doesn't even matter. Why would he care about these small little things that seem so trivial in the grand scheme of life and redemption and everything? 
But the beautiful thing is, he does. He is able to carry those burdens for you. And he is willing to do so because he cares for you. So as you bow before the king, as you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, give him those weights. He can take it, and he delights to take those things for you. So humble yourselves. Cast your anxieties on him. But Peter continues on. In verse 8, he gives us the third uh, sort of uh, instruction. He says that we are to also be sober-minded and watchful. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. What Peter wants to impress upon us is that the Christian life lived, again, as exiles in a hostile world, as we humble ourselves toward one another and toward God, must be lived fully awake, with eyes open, with uh, an awareness of the danger around us, and a readiness to do whatever it takes to stay locked in. It's not something we can fall asleep at the wheel with. I guess it's fairly helpful. Um, Again, I'm from Indiana, so oftentimes Rachel and I, once a year or so, will drive up north uh, to Ohio and Indiana to go visit family. And now that we're this far south, it's about a 13-hour drive, which means that if we do that in one day, we're probably going to have to leave pretty early in the morning. And I know myself. I have come dangerously close, especially in those dark hours of the morning. uh, I've come incredibly close to falling asleep at the wheel gotten to the point where I feel my head kind of doing that nod thing uh, that you do if you're still in school and you're in class after lunch or something like that. Uh, that. That feeling has come upon me and it scares me because I know the risk. I know that if I were to give in to that temptation, to fall asleep at the wheel and drowse even just for a moment, literally in the blink of an eye, life could completely change, not only for myself, but especially now for my family. In light of that, I will do whatever it takes to remain awake at the wheel. I'll prepare beforehand by uh, drinking inordinate amounts of caffeine. I will turn on the AC as much as I can uncomfortably high, because, of course, when you're warmer, you get a little more drowsy. Uh, I'll turn on music, and, and whatever kind of music it be, just to get myself going, make sure it's loud so I can either sing or dance or whatever. And if Rachel's with me in the car, I'll try to chat her up, even if she's not really wanting to chat that early in the morning. Whatever I need to do, I've even come to the point where I'm really, really desperate, especially if I'm alone, to slapping myself in the face a little bit. And probably if somebody were to see me on the road, they'd think I'm, I'm losing my mind, that I'm crazy. But again, when you know the risk of falling asleep at the wheel, you will do anything to stay awake. I hope you see why I'm bringing all of this around. It's because if that's the case, and we know the danger, Peter said earlier in this epistle that the passions of the flesh wage war against our soul, that watchfulness is staying awake in the Christian life. If we're not watchful, other things about uh, our our Christian devotion will likely fall asleep as well. They will uh, lie into disrepair. A a theologian much smarter than I has said that um, watchfulness is the whetstone of all other spiritual disciplines. That if uh, we're not watchful, our prayer life, our uh, devotional acquisition of Scripture, our uh, being part of the fellowship of God's people, these devotional exercises will likely begin to waver because we're not being watchful, we're not remaining awake. 
there's so much we could discuss regarding this. And if you've uh, not read it before, I would recommend a particular book. It's called Watchfulness uh, by Brian Hedges, I think is the author. It's a fantastic book. It's very small. It would probably only take an afternoon to read through. Um, and, and in it, he gives so much great advice. But at least I hope that you see from the example we used earlier, it's imperative not only to know the danger, we're going to get to some of that here in just a moment, but to know yourself and to know the season of life you're in. Because whatever season, whatever situation you're coming into this room with, we're all in different places, you're going to be differently tempted to fall asleep, to be drowsy in your spiritual life. Perhaps things are going very well for you and everything's been pretty predictable recently. It's very easy in those sorts of seasons of life to be lulled into a sense of self-security and self-sufficiency to not really sense a need to cry out to God and to cast our anxieties on him because things are pretty good. As, as parents of a newborn not long ago, we were in a season of utter chaos and things seemed like they were all over the place. And you can, I imagine, realize that in moments of chaos in those seasons of life, it's easy to let certain things kind of go to the wayside. I don't even know when I'm going to be able to sit down to drink my coffee. So sitting down to have a regular Bible time and prayer time with my wife, it kind of, it gets placed to the side. Understand that there are different situations and seasons of life as well as your own natural, um, unfortunately, fleshly uh, desires and inclinations sinfully that will pull you in different directions. You need to know yourself, know your season, and know the strategy that you need to be putting in place before you get into those seasons of uh, drowsiness that you will take to push against those temptations. It's important in our watchfulness to be prepared in that way. But before we move on from that, unless we think it's only just our diligence that, that means uh, successful watchfulness, it's also in our prayer life. I think Peter actually, when he says that we are to be sober-minded and watchful, likely remembers something that Jesus said to him about 30, 35 years or so ago when he was in the garden with James and John specifically. You remember this. We just went over this, right? When they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night when Jesus was betrayed and needed them the most, he pulled Peter, James, and John aside, and he said to them, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Three times they failed. They fell asleep. And Peter, of course, would remember that night because that was the night when he denied Christ three times. So Peter is telling us, as one who failed to do so when Christ needed him the most, don't fail. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Watch. Be diligent in your effort, but pray. That's diligence and dependence. Seek strength that's not your own. Because while you may be able to white-knuckle the Christian life for a while and to do a pretty good job of avoiding certain scenarios that will draw you into sin, things of that nature, if you don't have strength from outside of you, from the Holy Spirit... It's not going to work for very long. Watch and pray. I know I spent a long time on that. That third point is so important. So to be sober-minded and be watchful is something he tells us to. But in the fourth place, he says, resist the devil. To resist the devil. Uh, going on in verse 8, he said, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Just a moment ago, under watchfulness, we talked about the fact that you need to know the danger. And the danger isn't just in yourself. 
The danger is also seen in the fact that you have an enemy. You have an adversary, and that's incredibly important to know. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, so resist him firm in your faith. Now, it would, of course, be wrong for us to go out from here and to begin to see a devil or a demon under, under uh, every single inconvenience and, and flat tire that we experience in life. But it would be an equal mistake for us to do what I think most of us, especially in the West, who are very influenced by materialistic enlightenment thinking, to just kind of push a spiritual realm and a spiritual battle to the side and to think that stuff doesn't really impact me. The reality is, and this is something for us to remember, that there are spiritual forces at work beyond us. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, and there is an adversary who would love to trip you up. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And if you've seen in, like, nature documentaries how lions hunt, they don't hunt at the center of the pack or the herd or the flock. They get those who are on the outskirts. They get those who are young, who are sick, who are weak, who are lame, whatever it is. They seek those who are on the outer edges. And that's often how the devil, how spiritual forces attempt to get at us as well. It begins through temptation. Of course, we know Satan very well as the tempter. And that happens quite easily by pulling on our own natural sinful inclinations in those times where we are not watchful. We're pulled toward a sin and tempted to think that it will deliver what we want it to deliver, even though it won't. And then once we give in to that temptation, Satan then becomes, instead of our tempter, our accuser. That's what Satan literally means, slanderer or accuser. And so he whispers into our ears after we've fallen and after we've gone astray, see, you were never genuine all along. It's all just been an act. You think Jesus cares for you? You think you really care for Jesus? Why don't you just give up? He whispers those things. You know it. And then from temptation to accusation, finally we reach that last stage of isolation where he pulls us away, because it's in those moments where you feel that weight and sting of guilt and shame that you think to yourself, I don't know if I can go to church. I don't know if I can look Pastor Jason in the eye. I don't know if I can shake another hand. I don't know if I can sit under another sermon. And not only that, but when I read the Bible, it sounds good at the beginning, but then I I try to do what it says and I keep failing. And when I pray, it doesn't seem like somebody's answering. So why not just take a break for a minute? And we pull away. And it's in those moments that we are in the greatest danger. Because where is a sheep most safe? It's nearest to the shepherd in the center of the flock. And that's what Peter is trying to get us to do. To run to the shepherd. In those moments when you are tempted, when you have fallen, when you've strayed and you feel like I should pull away from Christ and his people. Rather, pull in. Pull closer to the center. You need that more than you know. There's somebody who would love for you to pull away. Don't give him that. Pull in. Pull deeper. Resist the devil by drawing nearer to Christ and nearer to one another, knowing that the people around you are experiencing the same kinds of suffering. That's why Peter adds at the end there of verse 9, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's not just talking about persecution. Well, that's certainly something we need to keep mind of for the persecuted church around the world. Know that the people who are sitting in the pew 
right next to you are experiencing those same temptations, accusation, uh, accusations, and urges toward isolation that you are. For those of you who are younger, look to those who are older and who, who've been through that. How about we discuss that and work with one another, trying to encourage one another in that effort as we seek to be watchful and to resist the schemes of the devil? We need one another as we seek Christ. This is all what Peter wants us to remember. And he's about to close it off. He's about to wrap it all up. But I hope you notice, before he does that, before he gives us this fifth and final action verb to go out on, he turns our eyes towards something higher. We might be tempted to think that this is all um, just, again, our list of check marks that we need to put in to do the right things to be good Christians. But Peter is aware. I mean, Peter knows full well that we're going to fail in this, that we are going to stumble in this. And so what does he direct our eyes to? In verses 10 and 11, he says, remember God's faithfulness. He says, after you have suffered a little while, however long that is, whether that be all life long, he says, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter wants you not to lose sight of the past, present, and future faithfulness of God, that the God who called you in eternity past, who knew your name before the world began, who gave you to Christ, and for whom Christ died 2,000 years ago, knowing your name, who is now ascended in heaven, has having your name written on his very hands, that he remembers you now in the midst of your suffering, and will himself confirm, restore, strengthen, and establish you, raising you up one day, exalting you at the proper time. God's not surprised by where you are, if that's the case. God's not surprised by the temptations that have come upon you. He's not surprised by the doubts that are in your head. He's not surprised. He's there. He's present. And he is able to help. So look to him and his faithfulness as you go out into a world that is going to batter you, that is going to be hard, that is going to expect much of you and will resist you. Bank on that. Build your house on this rock. And in light of it, fifthly and finally, as we get at the very end of verse 12, which really I think is the almost thesis statement of the entire book, he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Fifth and finally, stand firm. In light of what God has done, in light of what he is doing right now, in spite of the fact that it might not seem so due to your, the appearances of the situation around you, and in light of what he has promised certainly to do, sink your roots deep into him. Stay connected to the true vine. Drink deep from the promises of God. And whatever storms will come, whatever winds will blow against you, if you are found to be uh, built upon the very rock of Christ, nothing will move you. You will be like a tree planted by the waters whose tree yields its fruit in its season. Stand firm. Stand firm in his faithfulness. I hope you see, as, as again, at the very beginning we talked about Coach Dale. And maybe it's just because I love the movie Hoosiers. And if so, that's all right. If it gets one of you to go home and watch this movie, I will have done my uh, business. 
But as the coach wanted us to remember and wanted his men to remember before the game, don't get distracted. That's what Peter's been telling us. The world, the flesh, and the devil will attempt to lull us to sleep, will attempt to pull us off of the narrow path. Don't get distracted. Remain awake. Be watchful. Focus on the fundamentals. Focus on the basic things that that got you to this point. What's the biggest basic thing that we've done? When you came to Christ, if you have, you bowed the knee before him. You humbled yourself under his mighty hand and said, God, I am a sinner. I need you. Keep doing that. That's the, the pattern of the Christian life. Day in and day out, continue to humble yourself before God. Focus on those fundamentals and remember what got you here. Remember what you yourselves have been through together as a body, but remember even more so the faithfulness of God, because that's the reason you're here today. It's the reason I'm here today. Focus on that past faithfulness and his future promises. And when you do that, give it your all. Stand firm. Run the race. Fight the fight. Knowing that your God is faithful, that your God is with you, that he's not surprised by the fiery trial around you, so you shouldn't be either. He's got a purpose through it. Trust him. At the proper time, he will exalt you. Life as exiles in a fallen and opposing world is not easy. But there is hope. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are good and you do good. You've given us so much to find a great comfort in. Lord, we confess that there have been times when we have been distracted, where we've been lulled to sleep, and maybe, Lord, even at times where we've been tempted to doubt your goodness and your faithfulness toward us, yet you've reminded us in this hour, so continue to do that. As we sing in response, as we go from here, uh, apply these words deep into our hearts, that we would truly take it to heart, knowing that you are with us, that you are our mighty King that you are both able and willing to carry the burdens that we often would carry in this life. Keep us watchful. Keep us prayerful. Keep us strong and near to the shepherd. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.